Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. So I think we've established yet again this week that um, you never play the Hitler card. Don't play the Hitler card in analogies. Definitely don't play the Hitler card from the podium of the White House press briefing room. I would like to point out that uh, not too long ago, I had lunch with a a guy named Mike Godwin, who is one of the founders of EFF and the originator of Godwin's Godwin's Law. Law. Oh, wow. Um, Godwin's Law, which was originally founded for, uh, created for Usenet, uh, the old bulletin board (laughs) system, and which posits that the longer an internet comment thread goes on, as the internet comment thread goes on, the likelihood that somebody will invoke Hitler or the Nazis approaches certainty. Okay, but what's amazing here is that this administration made issues out of the Holocaust like its first week in office, and they just keep coming back to it. I mean, if you just can't let it go. This administration basically is a long internet comment thread, so (laughs) Godwin's law does kind of hold. Right, no, no, I think think that we have now had cause because of this administration to apply Godwin's law to the White House press room, and that's what happened this week. So Sean Spicer... We've had death watches before. <clears throat> now it seems to be on his own death watch. Yeah, but there true. may Although be some competition. Ban- I mean, Bannon's given him stiff, stiff competition. This is kind of almost like a race to the de- battle to the death watch. That's right. kind There's of a thing. death watch panel that's been convened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's a special provision of Obamacare. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta say, like I, this is one of the first times I felt just genuinely bad for Sean Spicer because you could just see it as the words are coming out of his mouth and he's just like no 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 oh, Susan because God. okay he screwed up at the podium so you issue a statement you say I screwed up but no he has to go through four tries <laughs> before he can say he screwed up <laughs> oh, I think Bannon Sean might last Spicer. longer you do yeah well. no my money is on Bannon going first We'll find out. Let's put a wager on it. We can do that legally in DC. Bottle right? of scotch. All right. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Battle to the Death Watch edition. I am Shane Harris from the Wall Street Journal. I pledge not to use any Hitler analogies. I'm not gonna I'm gonna avoid analogies, period. For the period You know who else podcast. avoided analogies, period, Shane? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna yes, com- I do. I I'm gonna do. Com- I'm going to go straight to Nazi analogies in response to every point that gets made today. Uh, yeah. Let's see if you can do that. That'll be yeah. your challenge. I mean, yeah, no, whatever whatever substantive point someone makes, I'm going to go straight to the Nazis. You know how that meeting with Xi was just like Hitler? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, let's see how this let's works. See. Let's see how... Yeah, how fun that goes. I'm here with my good friends, Susan Hennessy, Ben Wittis, and Tamara Kaufman Wittis. Hi, everybody. Hi, Shane. Hey, Shane. Here in the springtime jungle studio. It's very springy in Washington. Very happy. Sean, take a walk around the rose garden. Sean, you need to step Enjoy the spring air. Sean, Just... take a breath. Life is short, man. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh my goodness, Melissa McCarthy is going to have a busy, busy Saturday. <laughs> All right, this week on the podcast, former Trump advisor Carter Page, you remember him, is reportedly the target of a FISA warrant. We Not even the Nazis were targets of FISA warrants <laughs> as quickly as... <laughs> Absolutely true. <laughs> Correct FISA not, number one. not having been passed yet. That's a low bar. <laughs> That's like the lowest of low bars. All right, Ben, you're one for one so far. <laughs> the U.S. launches a cruise missile strike in Syria and maybe sends a not-so-subtle signal to China on North Korea. Uh, Sean Spicer already got the not so Yeah, he's already one, got me so. covered on that. On North Korea, I mean, there's actually no country. Hitler oh, never went to North Korea. Yeah, yeah, it's true. There's no country actually around that bears the comparison more credibly than the North Koreans. Right. So actually, that one you can kind of do That's without totally a joke. Legit. Okay, there yeah. you go. It's a lot like, yes. Uh, and is the Trump administration strategy? <laughs> See, it happens to everybody. No. You almost did it, <laughs> no, Shane. I'm not doing it. I'm just not coming out of my mouth. And is the Trump administration's foreign policy unpredictable by design or just incoherent? You it's know, a blitzkrieg. <laughs> no, I was going to say Hitler used unpredictability. That was the whole early mid-1930s was, was unpredictability. So just like Hitler. Oh, no. Wow. Can we stop with the Hitler stuff now? It's really wow. dark really fast. Okay. Um, Happy Passover. <laughs> Well, let's start with everyone's favorite. Uh, I don't know. Is Carter Page like, I can't figure out if he's Forrest Gump or Chauncey Gardner. I'm not sure what he is. Uh, but Carter Page, you'll remember, was... I think he's the talented Mr. Ripley. He's the talented Mr. <laughs> the, Page. The untalented, the untalented Mr. Ripley. Page. He's the guy who Ripley strangles in the end. <laughs> <laughs> spoiler alert spoiler for those who haven't seen the movie <laughs> um, but uh, so Carter Page was one of the names that was written on a piece of paper and shoved in front of Donald Trump during a meeting with the Washington Post editorial board last year uh, he was named as a foreign policy advisor to the campaign uh, we also know now according to a report uh, on Tuesday in the Washington Post that he is reportedly the target of a FISA warrant which has been renewed uh, some number of times these are warrants that last for 90 days um, and they are targeting his communications that was made clear uh, in the story in the post um, sort of you know Susan, let me get your first reaction as, you know, you, you, you being the surveillance lawyer or the closest thing to it. In You've the room. surveilled people. Under You've surveilled five, so. people. You've seen these things. Surveilling all of you right now. Obviously, there's <laughs> been a lot of speculation about FISA warrants attracted to people in the Trump campaign and on bank accounts and whatnot. Uh, and there's been some reporting on it. This was the most specific we've seen so far. What's just your first reaction to the fact that they're presuming that this report is accurate, that there is a FISA warrant on this guy? So, look, I think it's possible to overread into the situation in terms of what it means about Donald Trump. Uh, you know, clearly, my my best guess is this is right, some sort of, sort of Title I warrants. Uh, you know, they have to show probable cause that he's an agent of a foreign power. Agent of a foreign power usually means you're knowingly acting in some way that typically involves a violation of, uh, of U.S. law. You know, a lot of people want to sort of jump to the, oh, you know, it's treason. It's, um, uh, you know, this is this is the thing, you know, impeachment, Trump is going to resign. If, like, I think that the Page thing has always sort of been the outlier. I think he's an example of extreme carelessness on the part of the Trump campaign, um, right, that they just took whatever name, didn't bother to vet it, didn't bother to sort of look into it. And you mean so when I, they named him as an advisor. Exactly, yeah. like that he that he sort of came onto the radar screen. Now, it, we should say we know from reports that now in 2013 he was being recruited by actual Russian spies. 
We know right. this from public documents. Now. Which is itself sort of interesting since typically sort of people who do that work make the observation that it's not about um, uh, convincing people to be a spy. It's about identifying people that are already, you know, Headed predisposed in the right or open to, uh-huh. uh, to sort of recruitment. So I think that says a lot about his sort of character. Uh-huh. That's that he does seem like he was a genuinely peripheral character in sort of the Trump campaign, unlike Paul Manafort or Bannon or these other people that Trump is sort of trying to distance him, them, himself from, oh, you know, Manafort? I don't I don't remember anybody named Paul Manafort. Um, so, look, I don't know that it has all that much significance in terms of, like, the broader Russia connection conspiracy. Um, that said, it means that there is very serious conduct, that that conduct continues to occur on an ongoing basis, right? There's still and conduct sort of the that would be presumably cause. criminal. I mean, there's, there has to be a presumption it could be criminal anyway. Right. So it's a it's not it's not like an ordinary warrant where you have to show probable cause that a crime was committed. But for a U.S. person located inside the United States, the definition of being the agent of a foreign power all incorporates reference to criminal conduct. Right. right? So it's like one additional step. Um, you know, he's entitled to the presumption of innocence, but look, it means that he's talking to somebody in a manner that the FBI uh, believes indicates he knowingly is uh, is a party to this uh, and that a federal judge agrees. The bizarre thing is the way that this story sort of the Trump camp is seizing on these types of stories, which are actually negative for them as if it vindicates his wiretapping claim or the unmasking. It's like it's just been such a mess. That part of it makes sense to me, Susan, because their wiretapping claim is not about persuading kind of most people or the mainstream media. It is about an alternative narrative that they have feeding to their base. And so they can say, look, this is evidence of our thesis and people who are predisposed to support them will seize on that and ignore the complicated, nuanced implications that you just laid out about what this might actually mean. The so I, th- I think that that I totally understand why they are seizing on it, even though it looks <clears throat> like it's not good for them from our perspective. But I do think that even if Carter Page was a relatively marginal figure to the Trump campaign, there is... There are two things I would say are potentially significant about this news. One is, you know, that it is just another drip, drip, drip of evidence that there may in fact be something real to the notion of untoward communications or connections between Russia and the Trump campaign. Um, But the other thing is that whatever they uncover from these warrant from the wiretapping presumably enables the FBI to hone its investigation into what was going on in the Trump campaign. And so, you know, it, it might allow them to ask questions about what Carter Page was discussing with people who were on the campaign staff or what information he may have provided to them that influenced their thinking. And and so I think that it's significant because it is evidence that the FBI investigation actually is unwrapping or unpeeling the onion of the Trump campaign's connection to Russia. So I actually don't think this is especially bad news for the Trump people. Um, I think it would be different if it were Paul Manafort. I think it would be different if it were, you know, certainly General Flynn or, you know, some of the others who have really close 
connections. But Carter Page really wasn't a campaign official. He was, as as you guys said, a pretty peripheral guy who Trump trotted out at some point when it was – uh, when he was accused of having no foreign policy advisors, he said, you know, he produced a list that included Carter Page's name, I think. And, in a, and Dr. Waleed Farris, yes. of whom we have heard just about nothing. Although he did also include a person who was the executive secretary for the NSC staff now. Right. So it's not like it was a completely... Right, but the, list. but the point is, he was never part of the sort of inner circle of the Trump. Trump campaign and and the and I think if Trump were being smart now, uh, he would try to draw a circle around it and say, "Hey, you know, okay, so maybe we had we had a, uh, I'm shocked that we had a bad apple connected with us who is appears to be under FBI investigation, um, but you know we've we got he was never that involved and we got rid of him and." Um, you know, I think the sign that I would be looking for that this is getting very serious and very close to the Trump people is a, first of all, an indictment, not merely surveillance, but actually a charge and against somebody who was closer to somebody who, if he flipped, could actually tell you what happened within the campaign. And I don't believe Carter Page is that person. And the evidence of that is, I can't remember if it was in your story, Shane, or somebody else's story um, several days ago that he's been trying to trying to uh, uh, tell his story and people don't even have time to, to, to interview him because <laughs> he's so relatively trivial. Right. That was in, the, in Ali Watkins' scoop and BuzzFeed that uh, he was actually – in you know, in communications with actual spies back in 2013, and somebody on the current investigation told her there's so many more important people than Carter Page to get to. But I, I actually think so, this is very significant. And just to point, to kick off of Tammy's point, I mean, if that is the case, and I believe it is, just from my own reporting, that there are other people who are more significant in the investigation than Carter Page. But if Carter Page has FISA surveillance against him. I think that, I mean, I'm not trying to say that that absolutely therefore suggests that people above him must have that level of surveillance, but that's a pretty significant thing when you have surveillance against somebody who was, after all, a named advisor to a presidential campaign. Right. And I think this is an important point. The FISC would have been more careful Very because of careful. that, right? The, the, the standard would be even higher yeah. because he was, they would have been so sensitive. The government would right. have been really hesitant to seek this kinds of warrant. And, and that indicates that there's something like really significant in terms of what they can show a judge. I mean, can we of, also just note the timing? This warrant was granted in June. Right. It's not. I don't think they said. It's said in the summer. Yeah, okay, the but summer. like relatively but early in the story of the right. campaign, possibly and, around the time the FBI begins investigating yeah. potential collusion. And I just, I find it, it, it sort of raises again the question of how the Obama administration handled this issue in the midst of the campaign. Yeah. So I think there are two things that are like in, incredibly potentially significant or, or interesting. The first is sort of to Ben's point on, you know, that you have to flip a person. I, I agree, right? Carter Page is not the center of the conspiracy and he comes in and tells a story. One, I'm not sure that there is some sort of unified conspiracy here, but he certainly isn't at the center of it to the extent one exists. That said, you know, he is linked to people. And I think the way that these kinds of investigations might ultimately play out is, you know, uh, 
Corey Lewandowski authorized, uh, reportedly gave permission on this trip to Moscow. Um, you know, what was that about? What? How did those interviews work? So you, you get the one person who has the tie to somebody in the campaign and you sort of you use that information to kind of slowly burrow your way in. And, and it really does seem like the FBI is being really meticulous here, like running down every lead, going through every link. And so I do think that there is possibly sort of a domino effect here of like you get the first person, you have Flynn, and then slowly information so starts to come we've together. had our war with North Korea and invaded Syria, then we'll finally find out what happened in the 2016 exactly. campaign. We'll exactly. Awesome. We'll get back around awesome. to it. Awesome. You know, one more point on this. And then too. our reward will be President Pence. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, just one more point on this before we wrap up the segment that <clears> has <throat> always intrigued me about Carter Page. It's still an unanswered question, and a lot of us have looked at this, a lot of reporters have looked at this, as to how exactly Carter Page ended up on that piece of paper yes. put in front of Donald Trump. That he was who, connected to Sessions. Who brought him in? It's always been this, there's been a lot of evidence that he was somehow connected to Sessions, or but precisely how that happened was never clear. And it's very strange to me and very puzzling that it's never been exactly clear and that no one wants to say how exactly Carter Page ended up in a position uh, uh, to be a foreign policy advisor to the president. It's also president-elect, well, then candidate. Uh, and it's very strange to me the degree to which people distance themselves from him very quickly. But one of the more charming characteristics of Carter Page is his, um, like a moth to a flame, he comes to the interview, right? And I don't know if Carter Page has a lawyer or not, but that lawyer's job should include like a football <laughs> helmet so he can tackle that man. Yeah. Um, because he gives interviews. He gave this totally strange interview to Chris Hayes. Uh, you know, I think he's supposed to be appearing on CNN today. Like he, um, at some point somebody is going to be able to ask Carter Page this question because he just loves to talk about how incredibly innocent he is awesome. and how he has yeah. no idea um, you know he like Martin Luther King Jr. Um, is the subject of oh uh, politically motivated surveillance. Can I, can I think can that I, was my favorite actually comment on that this he compared whole himself to, Yes, that he okay. compared himself to COINTELPRO. Can I just say that, <laughs> that just as there is Godwin's law, you know, and the corollary that you should not quickly compare other people to Nazis uh, on internet comment threads. There's a reciprocal rule that you, you, if you're tempted to compare yourself to Martin Luther King for any reason, yeah. should probably hold off yeah, on just, that one. Just wait 24 hours yeah. and see if take, the feeling passes. Take a deep breath. <laughs> yeah. Maybe have a drink. Yeah. Seriously. Carter Page. That man's going to flip like a pancake. As soon yeah. as he gets interviewed. Okay. Um, next, let's move on to the missile strike. So we actually, when we were recording the live show last week, uh, we were hours away, though we didn't know it for sure. Well, let's very, do, let's do the wrap-up. Let's do the wrap-up. Who, who wins, who loses? I, I def- was so wrong. I was totally right. <laughs> I, I, I believe the words I used were soon, loud, and ultimately insignificant. insignificant. I think yeah. So I'm feeling pretty yeah. good about my prediction yeah. on the live show yeah, last ben week. Definitely. Okay, so I think. Well, and by the way, thanks to everyone who came out for the triple on top beer summit because fun. that was like a really fun event, and the room was packed, and we had 
a lot of great listeners to the all three podcasts. It was really fun. And we haven't yet gotten feedback from everyone who was there about how many hookups (laughs) came out of the evening. Yeah, we're thinking about starting a matchmaking service. So let us hear from you. I mean, since we don't have any advertisers. (laughs) We we might as well find our own revenue stream. (laughs) Um, But but let's talk about the missile strikes because, I mean, I think ultimately insignificant in the sense that, you know, Rev did basically no damage, although there was various administration officials trying to say we knocked out 20% of the Syrian Air Force, which is not true. Um, That would be a very small Air Force. That would be a very tiny Air Force located in one place. Um, You know, there were planes taking off, you know, that day or the next day, I believe. Uh, The Syrian Air Force then went and attacked the very town that they dropped sarin gas on. Um, I want to get at a couple of just policy issues here in this. Maybe, you know, I kick this maybe over to tomorrow first. The whole issue of, you know, the red line being crossed for Trump, and I think we now have a pretty good picture of the president who responded very emotionally to photographs of people asphyxiating to death, of children in particular. He said this crossed many, many lines, not just a red line for him. Red, yellow, Red, yellow, green. purple, it's all like of them. It's like a rainbow flag. It's a rainbow flag lines. of lines that got crossed. But And this question has been asked before so many times, but now it seems particularly uh, important. Why is chemical weapons, why are they a red line? I mean, hundreds of thousands of people have been killed by this man, by Bashar al-Assad. Babies have been suffocated by the buildings they were lying in, collapsing around them and their families and their neighbors. So why, just as as a starting point, why chemical weapons is the thing that, you know, triggers the response from us when everything else is apparently, oh, I guess it's just... And why chemical weapons this time? This time. Right. that, That line has seemed so unbelievably arbitrary and counterproductive to me. Oh. Right. And, you know, it's interesting that um, the administration itself has made a point of noting that the Assad regime conducted chlorine gas attacks in the couple of weeks before this sarin gas attack, and those did not prompt American retaliation. Chlorine gas uh, not being one of the chemical weapons that is... um, covered under the 2013 agreement between uh, Russia and the U.S. uh, to destroy serious chemical weapon stocks. So and and in fact, uh, the regime has used chlorine gas uh, regularly in the period since that 2013 agreement. So, yeah. So why now is I think an excellent question to ask. Why? Why is the norm against the use of chemical weapons so strong? The norm against chemical weapons um, goes back quite a long way, about a century. And it's it's partly because they really are a truly horrible way to die. Um, you know, I, I actually have spoken to uh, someone who was a victim of a chemical attack by Saddam Hussein in the Iran-Iraq war and who recovered, but who still suffers the effects. And, you know, he describes that feeling of, of being of, of the pain, being unable to breathe, the recovery, the, the lingering health impact. And, you know, so I think that there is something very visceral and very human about the strength of this norm. But I also think that at the end of the day, it, it wasn't about the norm so much for the Trump administration as it was about the broader geopolitical context. This is 
a relatively new administration. Um, there are a lot of questions around its attitude toward America's role in the world, its, you know, desire to be to use force or not use force, its credibility. Um, you know, the Chinese premier is visiting at the very same time. And so all of all of that points to here's a great opportunity to demonstrate decisiveness and uh, and credibility, although it's weird to have credibility for a threat that wasn't made. But they just went and did it. So um, and and so I, I think that it's less about the norm at the end of the day than it is about the administration trying to establish some bona fides and in a way give itself a little more room to work on other issues. Um but I I do want to say just one more thing on this, which is that I think the norm argument is a really appealing one for the media and for the sort of foreign policy community and for American allies and uh, and partners around the world who have been eager to see some indication of normalcy from Trump administration foreign policy because this is a norm that they all embrace and they all understand and they all want to see upheld. And so even if the effect of this strike is marginal, they're going to embrace it because they want to encourage more. Right. There's even sort of more specific. I mean, I, I have seen a lot of people sort of responding to this, like, you know, uh, like why why does the fact that this seems like a, is this really a worse death than being, you know, bombed or the, the it's some it's somehow sort of linked to the visceral element. And, and I, I agree that that underlies a lot of the norms. And um, there is also something that is different about chemical weapons, and that's that they are inherently indiscriminate and and considered inherently indiscriminate under uh, like laws of armed conflict, international humanitarian law. Wait, Barrel bombs are not inherently indiscriminate? Uh, no, right. So biological and chemical weapons are inherently indiscriminate because they cannot target a civilian objective. They just, right, they, the use of them cannot spread. be limited. Um, uh, and so the, there's something, right, just like biological weapons, we we cabin off certain things. And, and it sounds sort of uh, the reason why these lines are drawn is because there's some recognition of the inevitability of armed of war and of armed conflict, the inevitability of civilian casualties and and loss, and so I, it, I do think it is it, it becomes problematic to just sort of to draw the lines and the real red lines around sort of just human suffering, right? What we're moved by or not moved by. I, I think it's an attempt to sort of draw broader boundaries boundaries that that recognize some of that uh, just the inevitable terribleness of it all. I actually think that's one of the reasons why Trump's response is so problematic, that while uh, obviously lots and lots of people uh, uh, criticize Barack Obama for failing to enforce his own red line, uh, you know, Donald Trump sort of had this, you know, 180 degree about face in the span of like 24 hours based off of seeing some images and apparently Ivanka being heartbroken and sort of interceding. You know, that's actually not a reason to respond. There's there's lots of really terrible things that occur in the world all the time. Um, the president cannot and should not respond to all of them. Mm -hmm. And so while sort of compassion and decency and sort of core humanitarian and values are certainly guideposts in in the way we think about these things. We aren't supposed to be making decisions about whether or not to send missiles into places based off of like how sad or upset the image. I just think this is a case where everything was pushing in the same direction. Um, 
Because in terms of intervention. Yeah. Because, you know, whatever human empathy the president may have had or his daughter in this case may have had, um, it was good for his credibility. It was a way to look different from his predecessor. In fact, to make his predecessor look even worse. It was a way to respond to things that allies, especially allies in the region, were pressing him to do. I mean, there was nothing pushing against it and everything pushing in favor. The only thing that might push against it are the sort of second and third order consequences of intervention that Obama thought about constantly. And this this president, who's very impulsive, never thinks about. Okay. But I, I'm still hung up on, I guess, different ones of you have said different pieces of it. But I still don't understand what the theory of this is. If the problem is that you know, chemical weapons are abhorrent and we shouldn't use them and we shouldn't tolerate use of them. Why this time? If the issue is, uh, you know, that Bashar Assad is killing civilians, why now? He's been killing civilians in very large numbers for a long time. Uh, and this attack is actually smaller than prior attacks. Uh, as recently as 48 hours before, Tillerson was saying, you know, this is Bashar Assad's future is in the hands of the Syrian people. And so uh, other than, you know, Ivanka being heartbroken, which I agree is not really a, a good basis for, um, you know, for policymaking and babies, uh, as though babies weren't being killed before. Uh, what is this really about? And, and while I understand everything you just said, Tamara, uh, I actually don't understand why it was different 48 hours earlier than that. Um, you know, you could still make your predecessor look bad. You could still, and all, you, all of that was true before. The only thing you had to be willing to do was go against everything you've always stood for on this issue. And actually, this is one issue about which until the other day, Trump was exceedingly consistent. He opposed uh, he opposed all intervention and getting involved, and he supported, you know, uh, getting in bed with Hafez, uh, Bashar Assad uh, to fight ISIS. And now uh, he sounds like Human Rights Watch. Um, and, and I, now that goes too far. (laughs) I I, I don't know. I mean, I, I heard him the, on, on NPR this morning, uh, I, you know, speaking, I don't know where, uh, in which he talked about how unacceptable it was, how, how Assad is an animal and he's devoid of any human decency. He didn't sound anything like, you know, I, I sort of wanted to say, uh, would you, like to be introduced to a, a man named Donald Trump. And I, I don't understand actually what's changed at all. I, I wonder if he understands it. I wonder if it, we'll get into this in the next segment. But <clears throat> to me, this was the most fascinating window into Trump as the decision maker, at least in the national security context, where it's not only is it driven by impulse and emotion, it's not moored by the need to be consistent. It's whatever I think now of the facts that I'm presented with now. And 
But that I'm is sure. a consistent feature of his personality. So maybe but, that yeah, is but the then the question becomes right? right. So so now the intelligence community has said that they believe the Russians had foreknowledge, and in fact they believe that the Russians uh, uh, may have assisted the Syrians in targeting a hospital while people were uh, where people were taken to recover for the purposes of hiding the chemical weapons attack. Right? Really, really serious charges right. against the Russians. Is his newfound conversion, his deep, deep empathy for these people, going to carry through whenever it actually Actually becomes uncomfortable for him. No. I wouldn't hold my breath. And if you watch the press conference with Tillerson and Lavrov, you would conclude no. I mean, and it didn't even sound like it did not sound like a Secretary of State sitting down with the Russian Foreign Minister after our intelligence community had concluded that the Russian government was complicit in a massive attack on civilians. I mean, it wasn't you know wine and roses. It was tense, but there was no real indication. Maybe when Tillerson met with Putin. It was different, but it didn't to me. Yeah, I'm sure in private he was real, real tough. Oh, yeah. And, uh... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, look, this is actually a good place to move on uh, to the, uh, the the next last topic. So there's this great article uh, in the Washington Post by Kevin Sullivan and Karen Tumulty, headline, Trump promised an unpredictable, in quotes, foreign policy to allies. It looks incoherent. Um and then you're it, up. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it leads with during his presidential campaign, Donald Trump summed up his approach to foreign policy this way. We must, as a nation, be more unpredictable. That was a quote. But now these commander in chief anxious allies say that unpredictability might be better described as incoherence, a dangerous tendency at a moment of high tension with Russia and Syria and with U.S. warships heading toward the Korean Peninsula. And you might throw in the meeting that he had with Xi in which presumably uh, if it wasn't said out loud, the fact that he had just bombed Syria uh, and was now saying to Xi, uh, if you make a deal with this on China, maybe or deal with, work, work with us on North Korea, maybe we can make a better deal with you on China. And and speaking of unpredictability, as we are recording just now, according to my Twitter feed, uh, President Trump has announced that China is not, in fact, a currency manipulator. So he just said that? <laughs> he just said On that. Twitter? Uh, no, no, no. Uh, to, in an interview. In well, an interview. then I don't think it's official until it's been tweeted out. Oh, is that out. with the Wall Street Journal? Uh, yes. Okay. There you go. There yeah. you go. Um, so, yeah. So, it's, I think this, this naturally picks up exactly where we kind of left off. That, that you know, and I, the reason this, inter- this, this article, I think, really resonated with me is my impression in the first, you know, however many days, we're not quite at 100 yet, has been there is no strategy. There, it, it is incoherent. You, and I think you, you know, you saw this in the way that various administration officials responded on the Sunday shows to the serious strikes where you had Nikki Haley saying, one set of things that leaned very heavily towards regime change. You had Rex Tillerson not quite on the same page there. You had then Sean Spicer coming out and saying barrel bomb attacks would also uh, prompt a response from the president. These things don't go together. And a lot has been said about administration officials who feel that they have to try and speak to the president through television appearances. I think that's part of it. But also, that's the way I speak to the president. Sure. I, I, I try to go straight through Joe Scarborough all the time. Cause, <laughs> right. Because, you know, my hey, efforts. worked pretty well for you. you know, my <laughs> efforts to go through the White House, you know, you call them, they don't really return calls. They don't, <laughs> but if you can just, you know, take or it text from me. Joe. Take it from me. If you if you get st- if you tweet stuff at Joe Scarborough and he puts it on, President gets it right right away. I mean, but, so there's like, so there's like, one, one, one other point of this. It's it's I, but I think it's not just communicating to the president. I think what you're seeing is a reflection 
of the way the president thinks. I mean, if you have a president for whom positions are so fungible that you can go from you know, zero to 180 on Syria, positions don't really matter. Words don't really matter. All that matters is what's in front of you right now. And in an administration led by someone for whom incoherence is maybe a feature and not a bug and inconsistency is not something to be avoided, it is no wonder to me that these people are taking various different positions and perhaps feel no consequence in being at odds from each other. I don't think Nikki Haley and Rex Tillerson give a moment's thought to the fact that they weren't on the same page and they're the two chief foreign policy representatives. I mean, there's sort of there is sort of a strategic brilliance of it. I'm sort of getting ahead of the message and saying it's not that we're unbelievably incompetent and we have absolutely no idea what we're doing um, and we have no strategy and we have no policy and we actually aren't even guided by any sort of sense of coherent sense of morality or 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 uh, or, or American values or sort of anything that sort of would anchor ordinary people, let alone an ordinary presidential administration uh, to some sort of set of uh, agenda items. It's that we're just, we mean it to be this way. We're, we're being, you know, we're being unpredictable. We're trying to keep people, you know, uh, uh, you know, on the back foot. And it's not that I have no idea what to do about ISIS. It's, it's a secret, right? That this is all, it just smells to me of it's a convenient way for them to uh, have a talking point to respond to the fact that there isn't a policy, uh, that there's some sort of the organizing principle here is essentially chaos. And then after the fact, they can justify anything as having come from this, you know, brilliant strategy of of being unpredictable. So I I I don't know that it's about constructing a narrative of, you know, sort of mad dog genius. I do think it's more, as Shane was saying, a feature of the man that he's so tactical, he's so transactional, he's so short term in his thinking that this is the result. And the other thing that we know about the way he ran his business empire is that he liked to have different people with very different perspectives kind of fight it out in front of him. And we are seeing that in these senior officials also speaking in public, kind of fighting it out in front of all of us. So I think all of this is of a piece with the man that we know, and we shouldn't expect it to change, and we shouldn't expect it to be any different. I do think there are two challenges for us uh, um, and for the national security uh, senior officials who work for the president in these circumstances, the challenge for for the officials, for Tillerson and Haley and Mattis and so on is that, and for their bureaucracies, is that there's a tendency to try and um, ensnare your principle with, you know, little hints of principles and policies and a line in a speech that then you point to six months down the road and say, well, we said this, and therefore, in this situation, we have to do the thing that I would prefer. That's not going to work with this guy because this guy doesn't care about consistency. So he, he's perfectly willing to say one thing one day and con and contradict it the next. And they're going to have to figure out another way to ensnare him in a web of principles if that's what they want to do. The challenge for the rest of us is that we're all trained to see coherence, to discern strategy. And American partners and adversaries around the world are trying to do the same thing. They're trying to understand what's the underlying logic here. What connects the dots? And, you know, the fact is, these dots don't connect. They're not going to connect. And I think for all of us in the sort of foreign policy analysis biz, we need to really take that to heart and understand that trying to find some kind of Trump doctrine here is foolishness, A, and B, it imposes um, 
a, a logic on this president that he does not and will not share. So we'll be analytically wrong, but we'll also be giving him way too much credit. So I, I also think it bears since they're talking about unpredictability as a virtue. It also bears asking the question, when is predictability versus unpredictability a virtue? And I think, you know, if you think about it like a kind of reptilian 1950s era nuclear, you know, nuclear exchange theorist, um, you'd say there are circumstances in which you want absolute predictability, right? If you launch nuclear weapons against us, you want to have absolute predictability that you will be incinerated, right? That's the foundation of deterrence. On the other hand, if you're dealing with an actor who you may not be prepared to act against, having a measure of uncertainty in which they have to worry that you actually will act against uh, you know, can allow you to get away with things that you wouldn't get away with otherwise. And so I think, you know, when, when he says, you know, we've been too predictable, um, you know, the, and proposes unpredictability as a solution to that. The question is, when are you proposing to be unpredictable? And when are you proposing to be predictable? And he he never addresses that question. And if you're proposing to be unpredictable about, say, whether our allies can count on us, that is really not a good thing, right? And And I think one of the things that he's shown over the last couple of months is that he's actually proposing to be predictable, unpredictable essentially all the time, including in areas, by the way, where we've assumed he was going to be predictable, like I assumed he would be predictably anti-interventionist in Syria. And he turns out this week to sound like, as I say, like Human Rights Watch. That is not good unpredictability. But he's also confusing different types of advantageous unpredictability, right? You want to be somewhat ambiguous about the precise threshold because you don't want people to know exactly where the line is so they can tiptoe right up to the line. That's a a completely different thing than nobody having any idea what you're talking about and where you stand on anything. I mean, they're not even like other than conceptually the notion of unpredictability sort of being in the same sentence. It's not like they have nothing to do with each other, but he, he conflates these ideas. Um, like he, he's like a, a college freshman that sort of has, has crammed on a deterrence paper and like, (laughs) right. He didn't quite get to the end and he like remembers there's something about playing and ambiguity, but just, you know, finish out the essay, send it in. And like, there's just, the, there's something fundamentally flawed in the logic. It seems to me there's, a, there's, we can go back to, I mean, the example that pops to my mind of ambiguity and lack of clarity and advisors, you know, vying for the attention of the president. As I go back to 83 in the Reagan White House and the response to the Beirut bombing, which has been famously studied where People went into a meeting with Reagan and believed that he had said, I want an airstrike uh, to retaliate against the terrorist groups in Lebanon that did this. And then Casper Weinberger starts going behind people's backs. And then it's not clear if everybody thought the president really said what he said. 
Uh, it seems to me that in a situation like this, there's the potential as well for the president's own advisors and the people around him to not be entirely clear on what he means and what he wants. And incentives for them to do so, right? right. If you know that there's always ambiguity, you just take, you hear whatever you want right. to hear, and then you go start implementing I And mean, we are yeah. less than 100 days in, and already, like, you know, we've done military strikes, we've had high-level foreign policy engagements, big stakes things are happening. These are lots of different you know, toe holds on the rock wall for people to start grabbing onto and manipulating policy. What well, a ride it's been. Yeah. But as I said, I don't know that their efforts are going to be that successful when the president himself is willing to turn on a dime whenever he feels it's advantageous. I, I do want to point out, in addition to that great Washington Post article you referenced, Shane, um, a, a fantastic piece by Kathleen Hicks on War on the Rocks called Self-Help for the Grieving Foreign Policy Practitioner. Kath Hicks describes not only the problems generated by the volatility of Trump administration foreign policy, but also what others can do to mitigate the effects of that volatility. And she talks in particular about the role of Congress in trying to sort of establish some principles and lines and reassure allies in the ways that you were describing, Ben, and also the role of foreign policy analysts in speaking to the public and speaking to the world about, you know, the way foreign policy works, the way global affairs work, and what's important for the United States to do. All of this, I think, trying to create an environment that is influenced not just by what senior officials may say on Sunday talk shows in an effort to reach the president, but also maybe to create other things in his environment that will reach him. So go, Ben. Get on Joe Scarborough. All right. Quick last poll since we did a poll on Syria for the audience. Who thinks that we're actually going to take further military action in Syria unprompted by a chemical weapons attack? I think that we probably will. I think that he has put his toe on the slippery slope, and I I don't see any way around it, considering sort of his his instincts and, and sort of lack of coherence on the issues. I think that's where it ends. I think we will periodically have uh, strikes, uh, and they the aggregate, the theory of them in aggregate will not be clear, but we'll periodically blow things up. Uh, and so we went from soon loud and ultimately insignificant to occasional loud and ultimately insignificant. My prediction at the Triple Entente Beer Summit was so horrifically off that I'm not going to venture one this time. I yield. Uh, I'm going to predict that we will, and I, I like Ben's uh, uh, thought on this too, sort of these periodic strikes like we did in Iraq before the invasion maybe. Uh, and I also think that this increases the likelihood of military action in North Korea. Ooh. Yeah, I, think, I, I think he has the taste for it and he sees how – I. And it wouldn't surprise me at be, all if he came afraid, away. Be afraid. Be very Yeah, afraid. it wouldn't surprise me at all if he came away from the meeting with she believing that she was – scared by his use of force in Syria. I'm not sure it's true, but I, I could see him calculating it. I mean, I just not to hedge my bet, but I have one sort of, I can see it going one other way, which is that um, 
if it is convenient and because I don't really believe in the underlying deep empathy or morality of the decision uh, or that that was the motivation, um, I can see uh, somebody getting Trump's ear to convince him that uh, a decisive military victory for Assad is the humanitarian solution. I mean, you you hear those kinds of ideas being brought forward and I can see Trump sort of um, – uh, grasping sort of a utilitarian uh, version here uh, that allows him to avoid those kinds of engagements while still um, preserving Ivanka's tender heart. Okay, let's move on to object lessons. Once again, Susan. I will. Mine will be very short. Um, it is the necklace that I'm wearing. Um, which has sort of a Very little cage necklace. ball on it. And um, Ben came in this morning and he was like, that's an awesome necklace. And then like he waited for me to tell him like the story of what was inside it, like the tears of my enemies or, you know, some the sort of- fingernails of your, of your victim. Exactly. <laughs> um, because it does look sort of ominous and I couldn't come up with anything sufficiently on the spot. Um, so my object lesson, I'm asking, I'm, I'm going to ask listeners to come up with like a suitably- um, Macabre. A macabre and <laughs> Entertaining. It does, look, it does look a little solution menacing. for like what, like or explanation for what this is, so that um, I can entertain your ben. vanquished enemies. <laughs> right, exactly. I captured them in this. Procuring the cyanide pill that the NSA gave Ooh, you. Oh, that's a good one. Oh, I should have thought of that one. So tweet, tweet, <laughs> tweet them shame. to to hashtag Susan's necklace. Yeah, we right. should probably check that. All right tomorrow. Well, a famous, uh, truly distinguished. Hungarian-born foreign policy expert apparently came up with a novel proposal to solve the civil war in Libya by sketching out a tripartite division of the country on a napkin uh, and presenting it to an EU counterpart in an official conversation. So I, I thought I would try my hand at this since it seems to be all the rage. And I've drawn my solution to the Arab-Israeli <laughs> conflict. <laughs> you know what? Yay. There's a lot of merit to that, actually. Thank you. It, See, there's an ocean, it, uh-huh. and you can go to the beach. It's, yeah. And over here, it's really sunny. And it's like uh-huh. everything's divided like into a pie. Yeah. Everyone like, gets a piece no, of the pie. No, because it's it's like the rays of the sun, you get. Oh, I yeah. see. So I, yes. I just want to say, I think this whole graphical approach to mm-hmm. foreign policy is is uh, it's the new thing. We you all think? I think you should give that to Sebastian Gorka, <laughs> who did the napkin drawing. Fold it up in a paper uh, English born, and by the way, to Hungarian parents. Ah, I also think I also think if if listeners want to uh, tweet napkin <laughs> divisions of countries to us, yes, yes. I, I'm open you know, for nominations. Yeah. We'll divide anything. Tweet, you yeah, want. it's like hashtag mm-hmm. napkin solutions. Napkin solutions. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and any any geopolitical mm-hmm. problem that you can solve on the yeah. back of a napkin, tweet it at us. And uh, we will we will talk about uh, Susan's necklace, we'll take what it, it very, contains, very and what are, what 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 problems of the world we can solve with a napkin. And when we're done, we'll take all of the napkin solutions and we'll put them in Susan's necklace and send that to Jared Kushner. Yeah, yeah, so that he can good. with he one necklace all, solve all the ideas. problems of the world. All the help he can we'll get. put them in like a raffle bowl. And yeah, like, pull and you'll, like, one pick out. It'll be like, it'll be like be bingo. It'll be like <laughs> the solution to Middle East pieces. <sighs> All right. Well, that brings us to the end of the podcast. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find links to our past shows on our website. You can follow us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter 
at RATL Security, where you can also tweet your napkin photos and your necklace ideas. Um, when you download the podcast from iTunes or Stitcher or your favorite podcatcher, please remember to leave a rating and review. It really helps us out, and we really appreciate that. Our audio engineer is Quinta Jurassic. The show is produced and edited by Jen Howell. Our music was performed this week by Sean Spicer and the Deadly Analogies. Doesn't that sound like a wonky band? I think the deadly analogies. But isn't it <laughs> like Sean? A... Shouldn't it be Sean Spicer and the Nazi comments? I, know, I like deadly analogies better. I, I, I think yeah. I think it's going to get him in a lot of trouble. I was just going to say our music was performed by Hitler, but that seems cheap. <laughs> <laughs> A little on the nose. And really unfair to Sophia Yan, (laughs) (laughs) who is actually performing our music and is totally not like Hitler in any way. No. Although Hitler did play a really mean show. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) On behalf of my friends, Susan Hennessy, Ben Wittes. We're sorry, Sophia. And Tamara Coffin Wittes. I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. 